Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Welcome to the Erotic Epiphany. Before we get into the details of the show, and we start with the fabulous interview slash conversation, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about why this erotic epiphany is so important to me. I worry about the state of our relationships. It's the reason why I'm focused on understanding eroticism. And I believe that history has been unkind to the erotic, abusing it, distorting it, manipulating it, and perverting the very essence of it. Eroticism has been altogether adulterated, and I believe that the consequence of such a shifting has resulted in the perpetual loneliness that humanity faces. It's because we do not understand eroticism that we don't know how to maintain relationships. The misinformation about the erotic has made it a difficulty for many to form a bond of meaning. The extreme result of this is that millions of people are forced to find contentment with isolation and pseudo-connections through the internet. You've often heard me talk about how much I appreciate the technology that enables us to connect to others. But the downfall is that we become dependent on those kinds of connections and are led to believe that we don't need physical, touching, intimate connections. What we've also done is we've placed sex and love on a spectrum. And a spectrum is a continuum. But how we have decided that the spectrum should lay is with deep grooves, which prevent love from integrating with sex and preventing sex from being transformed into an agent of connection. Eroticism is absent and sex and love are exclusive from one another on this continuum. And the idea that we even imagine a notion baffles me. We have love over here on one side, sex way over here on the other, and we have nothing bringing them together. I believe this is an unhealthy compartmentalization of the spectrum of mutual relation. So here's my question. Why did we leave out the component necessary to bridge the two together? Why have we silenced the loudness of arrows that amplifies our love? For thousands of years, we have been trying to answer questions similar to this. In one of the earliest attempts, to answer this question, we can turn to Plato's Symposium. A conversation unfolds between Diotima and Socrates. The question, what is Eros, is answered. It is Diotima who informs Socrates that Eros is a power that spans the chasm which divides. So I think humanity has known for some time that eroticism plays a significant role in the way that we relate to one another. And even though we can attribute Plato to the classifications of love types, I don't believe we must attribute him to the reductionism of the altogether comparative exclusivity of Eros. One of my favorite theologians, Cynthia Bourgeau, pointed out in her book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, that it was Anders Nygren who, quote, with one deft stroke of the theological scalpel, he essentially divided the core of energy of love into two separate species and assigned to erotic love, the only love humans are by definition capable of, a permanent second-class status that essentially negates its values as a spiritual path. It is hard to escape the implications that if one is following a path of passionate commitment to a beloved, one is on an inferior spiritual track or no track at all. This despite love's unassailable record as the more potent force at our disposal to unify the heart and transform the soul." End quote. So the significance of this presentation upended 1,200 years of an instinctive recognition and acceptance of eros, and essentially eroticism as a whole, in Christian spiritual theology. Nigren's dualistic and opposing ideology shoved eros and anything remotely erotic in nature to the back of the line or to the far side of the spectrum. But the damage was done nonetheless, even though his intent was not to demonize Eros or diminish its importance. So because of this, Eros was positioned nearest to lust, sin, depravity, fornication, and pornography. I think it was C.S. Lewis who would recapitulate the distinction. In his book, The Four Loves, he takes a closer look at Eros. I don't believe to reduce it, but to demonstrate why this component of love reorganizes sexual desire. He says, without Eros, sexual desire, like every other desire, is a fact about ourselves. Within Eros, it is about the beloved. It becomes almost a mode of perception, entirely a mode of expression. It feels objective, something outside us, in the real world. That is why Eros, though the king of pleasures, always, at his height, has the air of regarding pleasure as the byproduct. In any way, whose pleasure? For one thing, 
The first thing Eros does is to obliterate the distinction between giving and receiving. End quote. I think an ever-present fear, which first reveals itself through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth and continuing throughout history, is obvious. Fear of addiction to pleasure. And can we be honest for a moment? Let's consider this pleasure idea. How many of you have ever finished a climatic evening of saying, that was amazing. Why don't we do this more often? We should do this all the time. I know I have. I think I say it every time I have sex with my husband. But the thing is, 99% of us don't actually set an intention to have earth-shattering, mind-blowing sex every single night. Why? Well, for one, it's a lot of preparation and time. I mean, shaving my legs, especially if I haven't done it in a while, takes time. And so further from that, we have to make sure the rest of our responsibilities are taken care of. We have jobs, kids, pets to care for, social engagements to attend, bills to pay. And let us not also forget that we have Netflix shows to watch. We don't have a lot of hours in the day. And while sex is fun, it's sometimes a little bit too much fun and not what we need when we just want to rest. Secondly, even ultra-enlightened sex gods and goddesses need a break to rejuvenate and replenish energy. Sex is definitely a recharge to the system, but as our bodies age, which I can attest to, we become less agile. Of course, if you do yoga, it helps a little. That kind of constant moving and grooving can be wearisome, about as wearisome as deadlifting and bench pressing. And also, we'd never get anything done if we just stayed in bed having sex all day. I think sex only becomes an addiction when it prevents you from maintaining your responsibilities and duties. If an addiction were to develop that could keep us from focusing on what matters, it could divide our attention and devotion. I think Paul's letter aims to show that God comes first, especially for disciples, wishing to share the good news of Jesus. The people of Corinth needed structure, methods of application, practices, and prescriptions so they could reorganize their belief system to follow the ways of Jesus. Paul obliged by giving them general remedies for daily interferences with worship and church building by contrasting Roman Greco practices with Christ-like practices, distinguishing worldly practices from kingdom practices. The operative word is general here, and I think that's the point we miss. These generalities were given to people of a different time, of a different culture, and with a different understanding. We, collectively, know so much more about mutual relation than we once did. Paul's great concession was that he granted license to sex only in marriage, and only if you must. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, he says in 1 Corinthians 7-9. Paul was clear, I wish that all of you were as I am, he says in 7-7. Abstinence was the preferred way of life and the easiest path to God, according to Paul. And with every new society, new practice, or new religion, new parameters must be set as a means to control these societies to prevent chaos. So what I've discovered as I continue to research eroticism is that it becomes apparent not only from an anthropological view, but a philosophical, theological, sociological, and of course, a psychological view, that what we think we know about eroticism is limited and narrow. Not only that, Christianity has sought so many ways to demonize eroticism that presenting positive perspectives, backed by ancient and modern scholarly works, is about as useful as convincing Calvinists that hell doesn't exist. So we just kind of continue to believe what we want to because we follow suit with what other people tell us is the right thing to do. I think we're at a crossroads with erotic theology. In a universe in which love is encompassing, fully embodied, ever-expanding, eroticism is the transcendent phenomenon that develops the understanding of this love. Eroticism is a fully embodied, transformative power that assists us with developing the art of lovemaking. On this episode, Dr. Leslie Goth and I talk about the art of lovemaking, and it's something that I'm definitely going to expand on in the future. Because a lot of us are led to believe that because we're born with this sexual power, because we're born with this erotic essence, that we're going to be automatically skilled lovers as soon as we say I do. Just like we're going to be automatically skilled at maintaining a relationship and becoming the perfect parents should we choose to have children. That's not the case eroticism, as well as the practice of sex, is an artistry that we develop. And you know, that's actually something that I am aiming to touch on in later episodes, is this idea that this artistry of lovemaking, that's what eroticism is to me, making love, but not just sexual love. But this artistry is something we develop. 
We work with the phenomenon within eroticism and we develop not only an understanding but a practice that accompanies how we express ourselves erotically. If I could just share from my own personal journey, the artistry of the sexual practice, the unfolding curiosity and discovery is never something that can happen overnight. It's not even something that can happen within one year. This kind of development, this kind of process, this kind of reconstituting what a relationship should look like, reorganizing, if you will, depends on creating comfortable, shame-free spaces where the curiosity can be poked at at our own leisure. And in a lot of times, there is, there's usually a spouse or a partner that's just more experienced and seasoned as a sexual lover. Not everyone enters into a marriage virginal. Some of us have experience and some of us don't. Some of us were big old hoes and did everything. It's not like I'm talking about myself here, but I'm, I might be. But I'm just saying, some of us were curious. Some of us were too scared to ask questions. And some of us were willing to ask those questions physically as a statement of our sexual expression. So all I want to say is, in every relationship, in every aspect, patience is important. Patience helps create the space where we can feel comfortable enough to share our desires and our fantasies and our curiosities. So if we can just embrace that idea that an erotic epiphany and developing your erotic self does not mean you instantly become sex gods and goddesses. That's just not how it works. We're not professionals. Like everything else in this entire life of ours, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We've never done it before. And even if you've had sex with somebody else before, we should never compare that to the person we're having sex with now. And if you're not having sex, thank you for listening to this because the rest of the episode is about sex. With all of this being said, I want to now move into the recorded conversation that I had the pleasure of sharing with Leslie Goth, Side D. And here's a little bit of background on her. She's been in private practice since 2004. She's an expert in the field of trauma, anxiety, and depression. She's a blogger, writer, and speaker. She received her BA in psychology from Skidmore College in New York in 1990. During college, she worked closely with eating disorder and substance abuse patients at Silver Hill Psychiatric Hospital in Connecticut. She received her MA in PsyD in clinical psychology at the California School of Professional Psychology, Alliant University in 1994. After graduate school, she completed her postdoctorate hours in a variety of clinical settings, including private practice, nursing home, HMO mental health clinic, and a school for seriously emotionally disturbed adolescents. After graduate school, she married and took time to raise her family. Leslie Goth also had the opportunity to do counseling through her churches in Chino Hills, California, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Leslie currently approaches her work with a very progressive mindset regarding faith and healing. She works with clients of every faith and background. There are many paths to healing if the client is open and ready to do the work. After moving to Colorado in 2004, she returned to her passion for counseling and successfully completed the Colorado State Licensing Exam. Leslie is currently certified as an EMDR therapist and has completed the Level 1 training for Gotham's Theories of Couples Counseling. Dr. Goth has been invited to speak at eating disorder and EMDR therapy events. She also provides supervision and or consultation for both unlicensed and licensed therapists. In addition to working with clients all over the world, Leslie has also had the privilege of working with victims of Columbine, Aurora, and Las Vegas shootings. Leslie's practice is not limited to trauma. She loves working with adolescents and adults with all type emotional issues, helping them heal by feeling heard and valued. If you're feeling stuck, alone, or powerless, Leslie can help you move forward and connect you to your true self and experience a fulfilling life. She can be found at the Denver Family Counseling Services page on Facebook or by typing in denverfamilycounselingservices.com. One of the greatest gifts of this conversation was that it created an idea. So as just a teaser, I want to let you know that I'm looking for a way to make sure that I can collaborate again with Dr. Leslie Goth. And what that means is I also want to include you in that collaboration. Now, those of you who support me on Patreon are going to get early information regarding what I'm working on with The Good Doctor. So if you really want to keep up with what we have planned, and if you want to have premier access to some of the things that we're creating, go to my Patreon page, Danielle Kingstrom, 
And for as little as $4 a month, you will be included in the next project. So with that being said, please compassionately consider the perspective of Leslie Goff. just kind of started with a very typical, you know, non-denominational evangelical church and started in the Bible studies and, you know, just yeah. all of that. And um, one thing led to another. And then I got into a really bad church situation. And it was, I mean, it was basically a cult in my opinion. And wow. uh, once I was able to step out of that and really kind of think for myself, I was able to kind of put things in perspective. So. It's interesting. It's been an interesting faith journey for sure. Yeah. And so where do you sit on, say, for instance, your eschatology? What do you think will happen when you die? I think I'll go to heaven. Do you think everyone will? Um, I do. Yeah. I do. I believe that, you know, that is the heart of God. Yeah. Yeah. And he I've... reveals himself to everyone in... Mm -hmm some way or fashion. And um, I remember when my grandmother, Jewish, was dying, she was like a hundred and something years old. I mean, she wow. was a million years old, so I mean, it was just incredible. And I never got to really talk to her about my faith or anything like that. And I just have to believe that when she passed away, like God came to her and said, you know, okay, here we are. Yeah. Where would you like to go? <laughs> you yeah, know? I love you know? that. And I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where I came up with that. I don't know if I'm just trying to make myself feel better, but um, that just felt really authentic and genuine. I just feel like that's who he is. Mm -hmm. So I love yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I believe. Yeah. So you grew up Jewish. So um, is the Jewish system more open on sexuality and eroticism or oh definitely yeah oh definitely so what's that like I oh, mean yeah. were you able to ask all of the inquisitive questions you had as a teenager growing up and exploring yourself and it was open and yeah I mean there there definitely wasn't the like the idea of like don't masturbate and don't you know have sex before marriage like my mom I remember when I was a teenager she said to me you know just be in love like find someone that you really care about that really cares about you because it is a special thing mm -hmm. so just at least find someone that it's a loving caring relationship and I did um, and there were other things that kind of you know I remember some like inappropriate things that happened when I was a little girl and I talked to my dad about it and he was very loving and tender and, and sweet with me when that happened. There was no shame. So, I mean, I just feel like it was so much more open. There was not a lot of conversation about homosexuality mm -hmm. growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 51. So, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that it just really wasn't a big thing. Yeah. It just wasn't talked about a lot. So, um, my mom had a couple of really cool gay friends that we loved to go visit in New York. And that was really, I grew up in Connecticut. We'd go visit them in New York and that was really fun to see them. We called them uncle, whatever their names were. Um, but like, other than that, they were like the only gay people we knew, even though I danced, I was a dancer. So there was a lot of, you know, gay dancers, but it just was like no big deal. There was no shame. Yeah. There was no you know, it's just people. There's people. So. Yeah. We had, I had, we have gay people in our family, but it, for them, it was just like, no one ever talked about it. Yeah. And it was whispered about like, he's gay. And I remember my mom told me her uncle was gay and I was like, well then why are we not talking about this? You know? And it's just yeah, Lutheran. We don't do that. It's not our business. Mm -hmm. It's the wrong way. And I think to this day, I mean, our family's divided in a lot of aspects and that whole, yeah. okay, you're gay, but I just want you to know you're going to hell. You know? And I'm like, that's not a loving way to treat your family member. And 
my mom, my mom not at all. Not were at coming all. about age in the, in the seventies, and so sexual mm-hmm, revolution. Mm-hmm. I always refer to my parents sure. as my parents, and yeah, yeah, I had that openness too. We didn't have, there wasn't a lot of heavy church influence at all. There was spiritual influence, and so yeah, there was so much openness. I could ask any question with my mom; she would answer That's as best so she great. could, and said similar things like, yeah. you know, I'm not going to tell you to wait till you get married because I don't think you will, but wait until you're in love. Wait until it feels right. Don't let someone coerce you to do it. And I think those are the kinds of yeah. tips churches and and communities mm-hmm. should be presenting mm-hmm. to people. Because if we're not, we're scaring these people. We're creating this anxiety. And as you had said in your email, you noticed that yes. it affects Christian couples. So I'm wondering if you could talk to, to So much, that. so much. So when I work with a couples and they'll, they'll sit down with pride, like, ah, we both waited till marriage or one of them waited till marriage, you know? And I'm like, well, how's your sex life? <laughs> you know? yeah. Terrible. There's no freedom. There's still so much shame. They're, they mm. can't just let loose and, you know, fly from the chandelier because that's dirty and wrong and crazy and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, this is what you waited for. And a lot of their belief is, where's the reward? We waited. Now we're supposed to be blessed, right? If instant wait, sex gods. Instant, right? They're going to just be like, right, exactly. Instant sex gods and goddesses. So we waited. Where are the blessings? This is one of God's promises. I'm like, no, it's not. That is not one of God's promises yes. at all, you know? So, um, yeah. And that's the belief that, you know, a lot of kids grow up in youth group believing if you wait, then God will bless your relationship. He will bless your sex life. He will bless your marriage. He'll bless your children. He'll you know, all of that. And it's bullshit. Yeah. Sorry. Can I do that? I'm yeah, gonna... absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm no stranger to the vulgar word. Trust okay. me. <laughs> I cuss like a sailor. So okay. My people. All right. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I noticed that you have a lot of focus too on anxiety and PTSD and um, even eating disorders, and I couldn't help but question how those kinds of upsets in our life can actually have a deeper impact on kind of integrating our erotic selves too, especially the anxiety oh, of sex is dirty, save it for someone you love, and this idea of how de- how we're basically told that sex will kill us if we don't wait until we're married. And then you're supposed to go, okay, go. And you're like, I've been told my whole life this is bad. And it creates an anxiety. And so I'm wondering with just some of the applications that you offer to people who are just your everyday anxiety. Is there anything specific, first of all, like listed as sexual anxiety? And and what does that look Mm -hmm. like? And no. Yeah, not that I'm aware of, not in like in the diagnostic, you know, mm-hmm. statistical manual that we use for diagnosis. Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, there certainly could be. I mean, like with men, you know, erectile dysfunction has a lot to do with that anxiety, like performance anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. But I don't, I don't think, to my knowledge, because I don't, you know, I don't know all the diagnoses in the entire manual. But I, that, not that I'm aware of. But anxiety, just in general, can certainly affect our sex life. And, you know, for women, it's hard to just relax and just mm-hmm. enjoy the experience and feel free in the experience. And for men, it affects their ability to perform, literally. Um, so that can cause problems sexually for people, for sure. That can show up all the time. Yeah. So I was just I'm recently working with a gentleman who um, he's in his late 20s and, and he's a, just a great, great, great person, great guy. And he just started dating someone and had a lot of uh, just anxiety about just self-esteem. Am I good enough? He, all his whole life, he's never felt good enough. Okay. Just in general, that's, that's a horrible negative belief to have. And yeah. that this has been his negative belief. And so he, this girl, you know, approaches him, gives him her number, pursues him. He's like, this is unbelievable. This is a miracle. And things progress. They go to have sex. He can't perform. Mm. Because he's, there's, I'm not good enough. Like it's that negative belief. I'm not good enough. How, and it came out in that way and everything like the red carpet was laid out for him and he just couldn't do it. So until they actually sat together and talked Mm. and created that safety, then he was able to, 
connect with her and feel safer with her in that way. So safety is huge because what's anxiety? Anxiety is either one of two things or both. I'm not safe or I'm not in control. Mm. It's one or both of those things that create the angst within us. And so yeah. he felt out of control and unsafe. And both men are things. supposed to be the safety providers oh, and the ones absolutely. in control. And so that's working right. against your whole masculine image. And they're supposed wow. to get hard and stay hard forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that pressure. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that would be lovely. But no, that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> do you not think... Actually, anyway. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, yes. Um... <laughs> Do you think, I'm just curious, not that you're an expert in the, in the, in the, this particular area, or maybe you are, do you think porn has an adverse effect on men mm. in performance? Great question. Great question. There's not a one way answer to that mm-hmm. question. It can, yeah. it can absolutely create again, more pressure to actually be a certain size, right? Mm-hmm. Cause if you're watching porn, those men are usually quite large. Yeah. And so there's that, you know, like how women, when we look at magazines, we're like, oh my God, I'm not that skinny. I'm yeah. not that pretty. It's the same thing. We all of a sudden, we automatically, the minute we, you know, look at a magazine, we're not good enough, pretty enough, sexy enough, young enough, whatever. For men, I think it could have that effect too. Mm-hmm. So I don't look like that. How can I perform like that? So there's that pressure. Um, so it could create a lot of anxiety and then, you know, affect how they just have intimacy, connection, how they feel safe. It's a way to like have a false sense of attachment. It's a way to have a false relationship with someone. It's a way to avoid intimacy. Um, But it can also be used to enhance intimacy. That's Mm -hmm. why it's not just a one-way answer. I've told couples, go home and watch porn. I've done that. Yeah. I've actually done that. And if anyone in the Christian community heard me say that, they may like have a heart attack. But I have, right? Yeah. Because it can be an enhancement. It can be a way, it can be a resource for couples sexually. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. just depends what is your relationship with pornography, just like anything. What's your relationship with food, money, alcohol, sex, yeah. alcohol drugs, yeah. shopping, na- pick your poison. What's your relationship with it? Mm-hmm. So anything can be dysfunctional. Anything can be unhealthy. Anything can be used to avoid Netflix. I mean, mm. how many people sit around for hours and hours and hours and watch yes. Netflix? Guilty, binging. <laughs> Me too, honey. I've done it plenty of times. Yep. We can share shows what we want to watch when we're done talking. But like anything can be out of balance and used to just avoid feelings and intimacy and connection. Mm. Anything can be used for that. Pornography can certainly be used for that. So, um, and so when we're reaching for things to avoid something else, that should be the indicator for us to go, wait a minute, is that what I really want? Or am I just running from what I really want? Yeah. Yeah, What purpose, where's this coming from and what purpose does this serve me? Is this really making, is this really an enhancement or something that's actually hurting me? Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. It takes, it takes awareness, right? You have to be aware of yourself to be able to ask yourself those questions Yes. because so often we're just on autopilot, right? Mm. You know, we come home from work, we're stressed. Oh, I'm just going to go to porn or I'm going to yeah. go eat a ton or I'm going to, you know, have five glasses of wine or something like it. Pick your poison. What's yeah. going on within us. Mm-hmm. So, and we're not so often aware of our habits and Correct. We think that the habits that we pick up are are fine because, well, everybody else has these same habits. Like, I mean, Netflix, sure. we could sit here and justify, no, everybody else binges. Okay. <laughs> now are we pausing and reflecting right. and going, right. but is this a habit that's useful? And am I even aware mm-hmm. that I don't even think about what I'm doing? I just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that autopilot, right? Mm. Right. And we wake up one day and we're miserable and we wonder why. Yeah. Or we're not happy sexually or we're not happy in our faith or we're not happy in our relationship. Well, let's, let's start, you know, looking inward and figuring out what's going on. Yeah. So what do you- That's a lot of work to do that. Oh 
God, tell me about it. I know I've just, I've been going through um, the last three or four years, but just very intentional about paying attention to myself and watching myself transform, embracing a transformation, thinking differently. And Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. it really helps you realize how many little patterned and programmed ways that like I was doing things that I didn't even, I was like, that's so dumb. I wasted so much time doing that just Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. well, that's the way it's always been done. And um, yeah. yeah, Yeah. So So you said you see transformation every day. I read it in in one, I think one of your blogs or something. And I thought, you know, I would really like to know what that looks like. And so you work with people who are, let's say, I know, for instance, um, eating disorders. So what is that like to just kind of watch somebody go through that transformation and start to finally see themselves and heal themselves and love themselves? Well, just like anything, I mean, people have to want to change, right? And so um, that's always the first hurdle, especially someone with an eating disorder, because there's always that fear of, let's say it's someone with anorexia. It's the fear of getting fat. So we have to be able to say, okay, the eating disorder is a symptom, whatever the eating disorder is, whether it's binge eating disorder, anorexia, orthorexia, whatever it is, what's underneath the the eating disorder is merely a symptom of pain Hmm. of probably some trauma in there of something that's underneath that then drives the eating disorder to help you get back a sense of control. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, it's all about, you know, it's feeling out of control or unsafe. Um, and eating disorders are very anxiety driven. Mm. So it's getting back that sense of safety and control. So I'm going to hyper-focus on my food. I'm going to think about it 24 hours a day. I'm going to count my calories. I'm going to exercise like crazy. This is going to be what I focus on so that I can avoid my pain. Okay. Mm. So the transformation comes with, we get underneath the eating disorder. Now, clearly if they're anorexic and they need nutritional support, we have to provide, get all these resources in place so that the client is going to be okay medically. That's always the first step. But to do the emotional work, we got to get underneath the behaviors because the behaviors are just a symptom. So we get into the trauma, we get into the pain and help them learn how to feel the feelings, face the shit, you know, work through, process their trauma so they don't need this false sense of control. It's a false sense of safety. It's all fantasy. It's not real. And they're dying. So clearly it's not really working for them when they can really see that and want to live and want to have this healthy relationship with food in their body. That's a huge transformation. Then they don't need this, this unhealthy thing to survive anymore. They can do it with healthier coping mechanisms and you can't remove something without replacing it with something else. So Mm. we can't just get rid of the behaviors like overnight. We have to, slowly but surely remove them and replace them with healthier coping mechanisms. And that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. I really, that really kind of stuck out to me. I hadn't thought about that. I was reading that on something you'd written about and you're like, if you're going to get rid of the addiction, you have to replace it. And I'm like, we're always told we just have to get rid of stuff. Right. And no one's ever giving us like the substitute. Okay. You're not going to, you're not going to do math. Go do yoga. No one ever. (laughs) (laughs) I like yoga, um, but did not use meth before, but not knocking on anyone say, who's healed from that either, but I'm say, just saying. I like meth, yeah. Um, no, but that's the one thing that I see um, kind of just like a, a lot of failure in application with a lot of uh, the positive life coaching and, and, and positive mm-hmm. encouraging speakers. It's like they tell you all these fancy things and break this and walk away from this and ignore this and let go of this, but no one ever comes in and t- tells us, but you have to replace it because we are creatures of habit and because we are addicted to things. I'm addicted to coffee. I'm addicted to nicotine. Yeah. I tend to be a little addicted to sex. It's not that bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm a functional sex at No. <laughs> I know that's a serious thing. Um, but I yeah. really appreciate that, that you point that out. You talk about how that's very important in implementing this new idea or a new habit, a healthy habit. Now, you don't recommend maintaining that new habit though all the time, right? Or do you tell people, do this habit, love it, grow, grow from it, heal from it, but then switch it up again so they don't maybe 
because a person could say, I'm going to give up drinking and I'm going to become a jogger and then get addicted. And then right. maybe- Right, that could become a whole other- And pull again, back everything some- everything has to be- yeah. Right, again, it has to be, we always have to be evaluating, am I using now jogging, mm, yeah. something that's so healthy and good for me, am I now using it as a way to avoid? Yeah. Right? And so we always just have to be really honest with ourselves. And the other pieces is that I want to add to the coping mechanisms, whether they're unhealthy or healthy coping mechanisms, we all have a choice. And so if someone mm. comes in and let's say they're, they're bulimic and they're throwing up, you know, 20 times a day or something, and I'll say to them, look, that is one of your coping mechanisms. Okay. You have a choice. I can't, I'm not going to go home with you. So I can't stop you from throwing up, mm -hmm. but we do want to have other choices eventually so that you will always have a choice. You could go throw up or you could go do yoga or you could just have a drink of water or you could just go for a walk and call a friend. Like you do, you could throw up, you are empowered to make that choice. So I don't want to take away people's power. Mm. You understand? Because yeah. again, that's losing control. Yep. When we take away someone's power, they don't have control. So I always want people to know you still could go back to your porn. You could still go back to the binging and purging. You still could go to running 30 miles a day. Like you, that is a choice, mm. but is it working for you? And do you really think the consequences are what you want? Because every choice has a consequence, whether positive or negative. I love that. That kind of taps into something that I've been kind of questioning and considering too, is this idea of if we're just still given permission to fall back mm -hmm. into our old habits, we don't mm -hmm. hold this perfectionist idea for ourselves that oh, if I God, do that, yeah. I screw up. And I know you, you probably deal yes. with perfectionism. Uh, with my own, even that's been a battle of my own to get through. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I see it every day, but I see it in myself and like just really learning that self-compassion piece, yeah. you know? So if I slip up, it's okay. It's always yeah. about what can I learn from it? It's always an opportunity. So if I haven't binged and purged for 20 days and then I had a horrible day and I binged all and purged all day, let's look at that. Let's see that as now an opportunity to see yeah. what was going on that you went to these coping mechanisms. It's okay. There's always something to learn. And going back to faith, that's where I feel like it's such God's love and grace. Mm. He's not beating us over the head with a baseball bat. What were you thinking, you stupid idiot? No, it's, it's okay. This happened. Let's look at it. Let's learn. And let's move on. You're covered. You're loved. It's okay. Yes. And so to be able to practice that, you know, for ourselves, for whatever profession you're in and give other people the same compassion. I mean, that's just such an important part of life. And it's such a, that's the, that's the heart of God. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. I always think when I mess up, I kind of have this sense that God's right there going, yeah, I kind of thought it was going to work out too, but it just didn't, you know, like we, <laughs> I love that. You know, I just kind of like, yeah. mm, this kind of did not work out, did it? I was hoping it would, <laughs> me too, but it didn't. So what's next, plan you know, <laughs> thank <B>. you. <laughs> the permission thing is very important. I love that. You know, I had a friend, I have a friend, he's going through some stuff with his, with his wife right now, but it is because he kept cheating on her. And, oh, man. and I kept going like, you know, what is it that you can't get from your wife that you keep going out to get from these women? And that's my mm -hmm. wife. She's the mother of my children. I can't do those oh, things with her. Yes. I hear that all the time. God. And I'm like, for real, that's the one person you should be doing it with. But <laughs> you know, I said to him, I said, what would happen if she said, I will do that for you? I said, what would happen if she said, fine, go sleep with her. And he's like, well, I wouldn't want to anymore. And I just thought, why? Because it takes away the, it, the yeah, yeah. I'm like, it's, oh, because yeah, it's no it longer takes forbidden. Away the dirty and the shame of it. Yes. 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 And, you know, I read too, I want to say it was like Dan Savage. And I know a lot of, and are you familiar with Dan Savage? I, I don't know. He is a really so outspoken, he's a very outspoken, um, kind of, I would call him like a sex guru and he's, uh, been on the radio okay. forever and okay. he kind of has, and he's got a very open idea in relationships. I think he's in an open marriage or he lets his okay. husband do whatever. And so he has this thing, like, he's like, just then cheat, go cheat, give permission to cheat or go cheat. 
And I know it's really, really radical, but there was another person I was talking with and he just needed someone to give him permission to cheat, to change his mind about it. And so he came to me and he said, could I cheat on her and not tell her and still live with it? And I'm like, I think you could do it if that's what you need. Well, she's not meeting any of my desires and she's not willing to try. And I'm like, then go cheat on her, create an elaborate plan, make sure you keep it on the DL and cheat. And he's like, just like that, you would tell a husband to cheat. And I'm like, I think you only need permission. And as soon I said, I bet you if your wife just gave you permission to be a freak, you probably wouldn't even want it that bad anymore. You know? So, you know, it's funny because when husbands do this with their wives, like they have this idealized, you know, idea or picture of what a wife and mother, the virtuous, pure, the the whole virtuous, pure, Mm -hmm. right? Like she doesn't burp or fart. Mm -hmm. Like she, you know, is just so whatever, perfect. And the freakiness has to happen with someone else where it can get raunchy and dirty and fun and playful and crazy and all that other stuff. And that's so not fair. Mm-mm. But but if that person can can be honest with themselves and figure out what where that is coming from and what that's about and and like because that I believe that's coming from it could either be coming from trauma or it's coming from how they were raised and how their mother and father, you know, kind of played things out. But I mean, it's just not true. That's yeah. the bottom line it's just not true and it's hurting your marriage and your relationship and your own sexual freedom. So, you know, because whether you give someone permission or not to cheat or to have infidelity, um, it's probably still damaging to the relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. So now that's different than an open relationship. I don't consider if you're an open relationship, you're not giving each other permission to cheat. That's not cheating because it's an open relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't, not in, I'm not counting what I just said in an open relationship. That's not going to be damaging, but to a couple that is like, we're married, we've said these vows. The expectation is we're going to only be having sex with each other. And now I give you permission to go cheat. That's going to cause damage. Yeah. I really believe that. Yeah. So, let's you know, one thing my, my husband said, my husband said the thing that hurt him the most about my infidelity was that he was excluded. And not so much that he was excluded from the act, but just excluded from even a conversation. Excluded from knowing. Interesting. Yeah, because I'm like, he'd been gone nine months. And I was honestly most, like 98% of it was like, I just need to get laid so freaking bad. You have no idea. And he's like, why couldn't you have that conversation with me? And I'm like, hi, honey. I know you're over there in Iraq fighting for our country. (laughs) Uh, these vibrators just aren't doing it for me and uh, I just need a man and is that okay with yeah. you? Yeah, you know, I couldn't imagine that conversation, but now I know, we are right? and where we've yeah. evolved and the things we've talked about and the things we've tried and just all of that is like, well, I understand you felt excluded and he was like, we to become one and then you go and make all these decisions without me and that was that's right most painful experience yeah yeah that makes so much sense Mm -hmm. I love that he said that to you yeah and that you could use that in your healing process and and move forward that is awesome yeah and we you know we've made an effort to not exclude each other from our fantasies and our desires too and like yeah because in the beginning he'd tell me things he was into. And I was like, well, I thought I was freaky, but I don't know if I can handle this. (laughs) And so, and then right after that, it was like, I jumped into evangelical, the evangelical circles and I was going to church and doing Bible studies. And so I was like, I don't think you're supposed to be talking to me like this. I'm your wife. We're not supposed to do things like that. And so it created a lot of shame. And I found myself. Absolutely shaming my husband and making him feel bad. Yeah. And so he closed up a lot too. And that of course made sure. our sex life suffer because we weren't being honest of with course. each other. And I right, was like, right, right, right. Don't look God, you know, I'm doing this. Okay. I'm going to put his cock in my mouth. Don't watch, you know, I, <laughs> that honestly, it's like, how do I get that image away? And a lot of people say that I think about Jesus right there. Like you're going to go down on that or, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that would be creepy. So take <laughs> Oh my 
god it's awesome i love you (laughs) but that's what it's like for a lot of people and i was right there and so i understood that and so but i mean i think that speaks to a lot of where people need if you ask me need to pull back some more layers of their faith and what they're following because jesus is not sitting there like what are you doing you know it's, no, it's just I not think he understands we need our privacy. <laughs> yeah. I remember listening to a pastor on a podcast talk about that. And he's like, you know, I'm just hoping God is just busy when I'm getting busy. And I'm like, exactly. God's like, that's you. But I tried to convince him too. And I'm like, no, God is right there. And I'm like, you're not sitting there thinking like, while your husband is penetrating you, that is God. And he's like, can't do that. Can't go there. I'm always thought, like, I, I'm like, this is what God created. Like, thank this you. Yeah, this is awesome. Let's enjoy it to the fullest in every cell of our being. Yeah. You know, I was reading from this book when God was a woman and she writes mm. about the history of female worship. And there's a point, there's one, uh, I want to say it was a, people who worshiped Aphrodite when strangers would come into the new land. They would present these women to them, like, come into our temple. It is our duty to welcome you properly by having sex with you. Like, could you imagine? Are you crossing the border? Hold on. Let me get my most beautiful ladies and give you a proper welcome. I mean, we'd look at that now like, that's sex cult stuff. No. But that was the appreciation. They're like, we share in this with everybody. Everybody gets it. And that's how it was, too. I mean... Wow, that is wild. It is wild. It's so wild. So what are some of the wild stories you get? Um, I don't get a lot of wild stories. No? Because, <laughs> you mean about sex? Yeah. I, I want to hear your stories, girl. <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> That's no, for the book. Because no. again, again, because so many of my clients are coming from the church and they've been so repressed. Mm. So I'm the one saying, go to a sex shop together. Go pick out some stuff watch some porn, like get some ideas, let's share our fantasies, you know, all of that stuff. Like I'm trying to, you know, get some stuff going here. Um, Because I've just been so repressed. And that's so, oh, so sad. It's sad. None of them ever found their parents sex toys and had questions when they were 10 like I did? No? That's just me? No. Oh, man. No. My parents. What sex toys? Oh, my God. My parents <laughs> had this little fun box at the end of their bed. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. That is hilarious. It is. That's and hilarious. It, well, you know what? I do, too. I'm not going to lie. We have, a, we have a couple fun boxes. We've, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of toys available out there now, so. There are a lot of toys available out there now. Yeah. A lot that I don't even know how to oh, use. Man. I'm going to tell you what. I shouldn't, but we I'm not going to get like into a tutorial. Goodness <laughs> sake. Some of the stuff my husband shows me, I'm like, you want me to do what? That? <laughs> Let that hurt? Like, are you sure? <laughs> and I'm like, no, don't order that. I'm not. No, that. Nope. Mm-mm. There are some crazy things, but I think, man, there are some serious masochists out there who just want some serious pain. But yeah. what's interesting yeah. about sadism and masochism and even fantasies is that can be such a healing way for a lot of people to work out trauma. Like, I, I remember it reading, is the way they work out trauma. Like, yes, even like a rape victim way. reenacting raping her partner or being raped by her partner, but giving permission and being included in it. And, it healing her and I'm getting her power back because she's getting her power back through something like that. Yeah. Um, and again, that will take a lot of preparation before a rape victim should do that. FYI for any listener or something, it takes a lot of preparation first, but, um, because the last thing we want to do when processing trauma is getting re-traumatized. Yeah. So it's very important that there's a lot of safety measures in place and, and a lot of preparation just so your listeners know. Um, but Definitely. yes, I agree. And I, oh, what was the book? Um, I have it on my shelf, but he, that's what he, he talked about with, with fantasy, that it's all about um, a way to process our trauma and, and remove shame yes. from sex. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic. Oh, I mean, well, I don't want to leave you right now, but I mean, like it's, I have it on my shelf. I just can't think of the name at the moment, but it's a phenomenal book. And that's what he talks about has a peach on the cover. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I gotta get it. it. You can get it. Um, your brain on sex. 
Ooh, I don't know that book. Yes, yeah, Stanley Siegel. All right. How smarter sex can change your life. Your brain on <laughs> sex. I'm gonna write this down. Yeah. Why you need to think more about sex. Oh, I don't think I yeah. need to think any more about Not sex. No. You, but <laughs> Girl, I have to shut it <laughs> off. Really like, no. <laughs> I love I love the peach on the cover. I, I do too. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, but he talks a lot about fantasy and understanding that there's meaning in our fantasies because there's people have shame about their fantasies. Mm-hmm. Like I shouldn't be thinking about being with another woman or I shouldn't be thinking about being with another man. Mm-hmm. Does this mean I'm gay? Like, right? Those are the thoughts yes. that start to come up and then they don't share their fantasies because there's so much shame with the fantasy. Mm-hmm. But the shame has, I mean, the, the fantasies have meaning. Yes. And it's okay. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's really, really okay. Oh, so I it's agree. It's a great book. I agree. My husband, the way my husband has been fantasizing lately I is incredible, actually, because I'm like, here you were when I met you, this skinny little military, nationalistic, <laughs> conservative, <laughs> I love my country. And now, yeah. he, I mean, some of the things we talk about, I'm just like, you know, if you're, <laughs> you know, if your military friends heard you talking like this, no, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's actually, it's, it creates so much safety because we mm-hmm. feel like we can literally say anything and neither one of us Isn't are at that, that so point great. where we're yeah. like, that's fucked up, you know? Uh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But I've had to. And it was hard because a lot of things he'd bring up, he'd be like, okay, I'm, I want to share. Okay. And I have to be like, Danielle, hold your face. Do not make any <laughs> facial expressions. Because yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff in the beginning was really hard. And I was like, sure. who yeah. does he think I am? Like what? But that right. was the most important part in going, I hear what you say. I need to think about it. Mm-hmm. I can't make a decision on that. I appreciate you sharing that with me. But instead, so many people, and I've heard my friends tell me, they're like, my husband can better not even ask me for a blowjob. Like, who does he think I am? And I'm like, you're, you're his wife? Like, right. he can't ask right. you for a blowjob because right. it's disrespectful? Like, really? Wow. Yeah. So wow. We've created so many different narratives over sex from for this sure. puritanical view. But then I think mm-hmm. a lot in some... I mean, feminism has its place and has influenced me so heavily, and I have such an appreciation for it. But in some aspects, it goes a little too radical, like right. porn is bad or, or even sex is bad. And so right. what that influences, and I just read this article today, is something called a sexual anorexia, where people, huh. yeah, never heard of it before. And... um so apparently it's the opposite of a sexual addict in that right, right. they're so scared of physical connection and intimacy. Ugh. Breaks my heart. Yeah. And do you see that a lot? Um, scared of that kind of closeness? Definitely. 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 Um, yeah. And it's usually connected again to trauma. Right. It that, Always that is, is not, it? it kind of is. Those I traumas mean, just follow they, us. They really do. And they come out in all these different ways, right. In all these different ways. And, and so that's why people don't realize a lot of their issues come from trauma. They're like, why am I getting chronic headaches? Why do I get migraines? You know, like I need to just co- constantly take medication, medication, medication. Um, and it's like, well, you know, I'm thinking there's some trauma underneath that. And this is your body's way of expressing it. So same thing with sexual anorexia. I love that term. I mean, it's such a great term, mm-hmm. uh, but it's so true. Like that, like restricting yourself from sex and sexual contact, mm-hmm. that's not how God has wired us. Yeah. We are meant to be connected. You hear this all the time in church. We're meant to be connected to each other, but like connected to each yeah. other, yes. <laughs> like touching, touching each yeah. other and feeling each other and you know, skin to skin contact is, is connection and being attached to each other and feeling safe in those attachments and then having that organically be a sexual connection. I mean, that's God's intention and that's how we're wired. We are wired as sexual creatures and I'm so grateful he wired us this way. Oh, amen. I know. And the idea that we want to say that, that those urges and those desires that we have is somehow 
of a fallen nature, I think. No. Yeah, no. No. It's, it's, a, it's trauma. It's trauma. It's definitely trauma. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Trauma, trauma, trauma. Trauma is so pervasive. I got to tell you. It is. And here's the thing. And it just pulled out of nowhere. It's activated. And you're like, where did that come from? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and when I started my practice, um, gosh, so 16 years ago now, um, I started as as an eating disorder specialist. And I, uh, uh, you know, just everyone was coming in. But I saw other people too, like depression, anxiety. And it just was like the, the trauma that was coming through my door. Like I couldn't treat, like I said, it was a symptom of a deeper issue, right? And so every person that was coming through my door just had so much trauma that I had to get trained in real deep trauma therapy because otherwise I couldn't help anybody. So yeah, trauma is just kind of the root of it all. It's crazy. Yeah, I agree. I've been working on writing this kind of like non-expert marriage advice book kind of thing. And I start opening up a concept and I think, you know what? I need to go back here now. And that you need this whole new chapter because you need to go, look, I didn't get to where I am until I dealt with all my shit. And so it's so unfair in some aspect that, and I get that. I think that's why I get a lot of pushback, especially with the topics I write about. I know it's a little unfair for me to go, but it's good right here unless I go only if you're willing to work on all Mm -hmm. the shit that you've been lugging around your whole life and trying to avoid. And it does start with that trauma. And it's funny. I was spanked as a child and I hated it. And I justified Mm -hmm. spanking as a parent with my first two children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I came to some understanding where I was like, you know what? I don't think this is right. And then after I came to this understanding that spanking was wrong, because I was on the fence for a long time. And I was like, honestly, like, it's not abuse to spank your child. Stop it, people. Then along the doors of opening up what my fantasies were, I came to realize that I actually liked being spanked. And isn't that funny? And I started asking people who I also knew were spanked as children. And I was like, is that one of your things? All of them. (laughs) Hands down. Hated being spanked wow. as a kid. Now it's, it's that thing. It's that thing I desire. So again, that's what the book talks about that I was talking, mm. telling you about, the, uh, your, your brain on sex, is that you were shamed as a child with the spanking, mm. and then it becomes a fantasy or it's something that you want in sex because now something that used to feel shameful now feels good. Oh, that's awesome. Just saying right? it like that. Now it feels good. How beautiful would that be if all those things that make us feel shame were all of a sudden like, no, that makes me feel good. Yeah. Good, good stuff. So what else do you do? What else are, what, what you, you focus on trauma and what is working with Mm -hmm. PT? Mm -hmm. I have to ask you. Yes. PTSD. Yes. Can you get that just from a president being elected? Um, I mean, I'm not trying I to joke or make light of it. I kind of no, am, no, no, but I no, wanted I, when to take I it seriously that, too. <laughs> I saw that on your, on your notes. I, know I laughed so hard. I laughed so hard. Um, you know, I can't, again, there's no blanket statement to answer that question, mm-hmm. but there's two types of trauma. There's little T and big T. Mm. Okay. The big T trauma, obvious, like car accident, a rape, a fire, a loss of a child, things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those are big T traumas, obviously. The little T trauma is what we live in every single day that just grates and wears on us. And like growing up with an alcoholic parent, growing up with a yeller, growing up with somebody who throws things all the time. Maybe you were never hit with anything that was thrown, but you never knew what was going to come flying through the air. Mm -hmm. Like that's the everyday little T trauma that really wreaks havoc on our nervous system. And it, and in our brain, it affects our brain the same way, whether it's little T or big T. Now, are people distraught and angry and emotional about our current president? Absolutely. Does it, in my definition of trauma, does that qualify? No. But I'm also not going to judge someone else's experience and say, that's not trauma. What do you mean? I mean, on the day of the election, when the election results came in, you know, a few years ago, I had other therapists who I was seeing at the time come in, couldn't function, couldn't go to work that day, 
wow. were a wreck. And I'm like, you got to pull your shit together. You got to go to work. <laughs> You're like, a therapist. What are you doing? You're a therapist. <laughs> to shame them, but I'm like, come on, girl. Use your resources. Let's go. You got, you have clients that are distraught over the results. You need to go help them, right? So uh, that was real emotion. I mean, that was real, genuine yeah. distraught, right? Um, do they need to process it? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't judge that. Yeah. I can't judge that. And also a lot of how we are traumatized is based on previous trauma. Yeah. You know, and how, what we're experiencing now, where, what is that landing on top of? So again, like if I've been in a couple little fender benders, okay, not too bad. And then I get into a bigger car accident. Now that big car accident is landing on those other fender benders. Now it's all like, coming together as the trauma that I need to process. You understand? So that's why certain, um, you know, your husband in the military, um, certain soldiers can come back from war and have had the exact same experience, been in the trenches side by side. One of them comes back completely traumatized and one of them does not. Mm. How do you explain that? Because of how their brain is wired and previous traumas that maybe they had. Wow. All right. Yeah. So I can't, you know, yeah. So you got my it's opinion. It's good to know. I'm certainly not going to judge anybody, you know? Well, but no, I mean, it's hard. I mean, PTSD was circulating on like the Twitter feed in the last week, something with Ilian Omar. And a lot yeah. of people were throwing shade at her. And then something got brought up about all the fake PTSD claims after Trump. And I thought, well, we should try and look at this respectively though. And Mm-hmm. In Ilian Omar's case, I'm like, well, she came from Somalia. That couldn't have been a non-traumatic experience. But right, just right. this idea that we're not willing to give people the benefit of compassion and consideration when they say exactly. something like that. So exactly. I just, I'm, it's nice to have mm-hmm, a professional mm-hmm. say something about it, at least to kind of clear the air, because that kind of always irks me sometimes. I don't want right. to, I don't want to get in the habit of thinking it's okay for us to go. I'm going to make fun of you because you just said that, and I don't believe you really have it. When me and my husband were going to couples therapy a few years ago, while we were in within the session, something happened like just in our garden, this loud sound went off and just freaked him out and he went into this panic. And I think we went and saw our therapist in the next few days and he brought it up and she's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. okay, Mm -hmm. what did that make you think of? He's like, I felt like I was in Iraq. What the hell was that? Yep. And you know, she kind of showed, she's like, sometimes they don't show signs. For until right. something just out of nowhere. Absolutely true. It. Absolutely true. Wow. Okay. So final question. Yes. Do you think on some level, and this I do, so I just want to see where you think that we, we all just kind of suffer from anxiety. I, that, yeah. <laughs> and why is that? Because we all need to have a sense of control and feeling safe. Yes. That those are our human. Yep. Again, God has wired us this way. Yes. And that's why in faith, you know, trusting God mm-hmm. is part of dealing and managing our own anxiety. Mm. Right? Because he, this is how we're wired. We need a sense of control. We need to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, we will have anxiety. And it's just a spectrum. Some people have a lot more. Some people have a lot less. It just, you know, everyone's different. And that's okay. Um, but again, know yourself. Know where you're at. And know that there are tools to, to manage it. And if you are a person of faith, that God does want to help you with that. He doesn't want you to suffer alone. So he yeah. gets it. That's what, that's what my belief in God has been the most for me is just a constant reminder that when I am feeling alone, that when I'm feeling unsafe, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, God is there. And absolutely. I understand why people can't get with that because of logic I and math too. and all that. But at the same time, I'm like, it's not, he's not concrete. He's not a person we can touch. Tangibility. You know? Yeah. That, that's the big piece. So um, that makes it really hard for people in this, in when they're in distress of any sort um, to, to, and you know, and that's why it drives me nuts in the church. If someone's in distress, oh, you just need to pray more. You just need to go mm, to your Bible. Yeah. That, that it advice makes my skin crawl, but it is, it's a practice just like going to yoga or going to meditation or doing it. It's a practice mm-hmm. in learning to trust that God is there in your pain. 
in yes. your fears, in your anxiety, in your worry, in all of it. He's right there. So, yeah. Mm, good that's, stuff. That's my, that's all my right. story. I'm sticking to it. I love that. Oh, Leslie, this has been awesome. Thank you so, so much. So fun, Danielle. My gosh, thank you for having so me. So please fun. just remind people where they can find you, where they can learn more about you. Okay. Okay. Well, my website is denverfamilycounselingservices.com. You can find me on Facebook at Denver Family Counseling, um, as well as Instagram. So um, yeah. And my email is Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, period, dfcs at gmail.com if you want to email me with any questions so yeah and it's goth right leslie goth yeah i sat there leslie and i'm like G -G -O -T -H. is that a tricky name yeah or is it the the cool name <laughs> i think it is it is Le you know i posted that i was interviewing you and i shared one of your blogs and someone oh, goes thank yeah i saw that thank you and someone goes is that her real name and i'm like what kind of question did you just I'm like nope I just made it up don't even know who she is yet <laughs> Leslie Goss Denver Family Counseling yeah. Services thank you so much this has been thank you, awesome Danielle.